Hello, one and all. Welcome back to another episode of the AirPod. I'm cozy and snuggled up in our booth, uh, ready for another week of raw news and chat. Um, it's been a little quieter than usual. I feel like we're finally winding down to the end of the year. I hope everyone's done their Christmas shopping or at least halfway through it. I'm leaving absolutely everything until the last minute. Uh, Amazon Prime or other next day delivery services will come in very handy for me. Um, this week, uh, we are going to be taking a look at Prince Charles's fantastic year. I'm going to be joined by Royal Correspondent and Biographer Robert Jobson to talk through Charles's year, his travels, and this talk, these reports about him operating as a shadow king, stepping up, getting ready to take over from when the Queen reportedly retires at 95 at Buckingham Palace say that this is not true but I'd really like to get to the bottom of that and then later on in the show we'll be joined by son of Duchess of Cornwall Tom Parker Bowles who will be talking about his winter cookbook Christmas and other winter feasts uh, a Fortnum and Mason special and before that I just want to run through a little bit of news that's gone on this week as I said the calendar has been quite light, but at the heart of that was the Queen hosting a diplomatic reception um, at Buckingham Palace. This is an annual event that takes place, uh, held every December for members of diplomatic corps, ambassadors, high commissioners and government officials who are all entertained by senior royals and, of course, the monarch herself. It is a glittering event, white tie and decorations is the dress code, which means tailcoats for the gentlemen and full length gowns. And if you have them, tiaras for the women and of course, royal orders. We saw the Duchess of Cambridge there with Prince William. We also saw the Duchess of Cornwall in uh, a tiara previously owned by the Queen Mother. Kate, of course, was in jewels that once belonged to Diana. And then alongside Camilla was Prince Charles. Uh, it was a Despite the formality of the event, it's not a sit-down dinner like a state banquet. Uh, guests actually eat almost in sessions. Uh, it's a, a much smaller meal uh, that takes place. The focus of the evening is really on the cocktail reception. And then there is, of course, dancing afterwards. I think guests have to be out of the palace by 11 o'clock, but most members of the royal family actually quietly left at 9.30. And then, of course, Duchess Camilla again, busy week for her. She uh, helped decorate Clarence House for Christmas. Uh, it's an annual event again, one of one of her favourites uh, that she does with Helen Douglas House and the Roald Dahl Fund Charities, working with uh, young disadvantaged children from a wide variety of backgrounds, uh, helping them decorate the Christmas tree at uh, Charles and Camilla's London home. This was, of course, a solo event for the Duchess of Cornwall, uh, Prince Charles, uh, busy with his own engagements. And I'm joined by Robert Jobson, biographer, author, correspondent, expert. What else shall I give you as a title? Uh, that's more than enough. <laughs> and Jobbo, of course, of course. To, to the other royal correspondents. Um, I wanted to kind of get you in so we could really delve into the world of Prince Charles because it has been another great year for him. Obviously, last year was very much the focus was on Charles at 70. Now we've sort of seen him in this new new era of his, stepping up to all getting ready to be king. And, uh, you know, you've been with him sort of every step of the way. I have, actually, yes. Ever since I started researching Charles at 70 and the, the books that have come as a result of that subsequently, um, it's been interesting to follow him because I wanted to focus really on what he does rather than 
his private life necessarily. Mm. I mean, we you know that whole story has been covered in films and in other books, and it became almost that, that his life, it seemed to me, was about um, his relationship with Princess Diana, his relationship with his mother and father, his relationship with Camilla, which of course is a huge part of anybody's life, but it seemed to ignore what he had done and what he'd achieved mm. in um, you know half a century of public service. So that was my main aim, and the only reason that I wanted to do that was to get up close to, to you know have some conversations with him which I have done and try and observe firsthand exactly what he was doing on a day-to-day basis and also as he traveled the world and so you would get a much clearer picture obviously if I discovered new things about mm. his private life or things that maybe he or people close to him wanted to correct because there have been a number of things that had gone on in living memory as uh, as as reality and actually were complete fantasy that's really what my objective was and so it was a slightly unorthodox biography but one that um and it wasn't you know, without controversy it wasn't without uh, constructive criticism mm, mm. but i think there's those around him that read it um felt it was fair and um you know obviously i've not been turfed off any royal planes lately and, and so obviously <laughs> he thought it was fair and I, you know when i was on that trip to the Caribbean he came over and wished me a happy birthday several months after the book was published so all I can say he must have or people around him must have thought it was okay exactly well that book's now out in the US uh, under the title of King Charles yes. uh, <laughs> perhaps a little uh, a little early but yes. we are we are very close now well they were they were, I think we're definitely in a period of transition I mean you know when Lord Guy at the Queen's former private secretary was awarded his one of his last of many knighthoods it was by the government for the work he'd done in the he'd, he'd done towards the transition of the crown. So, you know, obviously that that is in the out there, mm. uh, along with you know the, with the Queen's thinking and the Prince of Wales's thinking. And there's no doubt that although, of course, the Queen is the number one, she's the yep. boss. The Prince of Wales is very much um, hands on in terms of what is going to be the way that the monarchy will develop going forward. And obviously, Her Majesty and 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 prince consult each other on a regular basis they meet regularly to discuss all many things she's not like a a queen victoria who kept her heir bertie in the dark about things you know he reads all the papers that she will be reading she he she consults him on a regular basis he's completely up to speed so when you know a moment comes and if the the, the transition of the crown happens at that particular moment you know he's completely up to speed and although it'll be a monumental moment in the history of the United Kingdom and the, the, the greater Commonwealth and the wider world, I think that the Prince of Wales will be able to quite happily continue the role that his mother has, uh, has performed so well. Mm. We've seen this term, sort of the shadow king, sort of banded around yeah, by, some, like of the, by yeah. some of the papers yeah. and, and talk about him sort of taking over as sort of a prince regent when the queen turns 95 and mm. technically reti- retires. Now, that's something that the palace have pretty much gone on the record and denied but w- what is the story there well they will deny it until it happens um but the reality is and, and the, i know from people i've spoken to that the queen has certainly considered this and talked about this now i'm not saying it's definitely going to happen on her 95th birthday yeah. she just you know takes the coat walks off to wood farm to join the duke of edinburgh i'm, I'm saying that it's something that she's considering and that that if she feels and this is the point that if her age and her capacity to perform the role as monarch um, is anyway hindered by her as an individual. Mm-hmm. She will not want that to impact upon the monarchy as an institution, and therefore a regency is there, an act of regency is there already in place, 
um, should such a situation arrive. And there's enough loopholes in the uh, the Regency Act for her to effectively retire should she want to. And there's nothing... I think a lot of people never thought that the Duke of Edinburgh would ever uh, retire from public life. But yeah, and did. it happened. And he did. And, um, and he's quite happy in his retirement um, and doing what he wants to do. So I, I, I would say it's nothing that's written in stone. The Prince of Wales doesn't necessarily even have to become Prince Regent. He is there at this moment in time. He travels the world and carries out the, the state visits, effectively state visits, on behalf of the Queen. He consults with ministers and the Prime Minister. He also does many of the things that a monarch would already do. But the one thing I would say is that as the Queen gets older, she's no longer doing the international travel that perhaps is needed. She's no longer going to be going to Chogham for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting where there is that interaction mm, with mm. other Prime Ministers that is extremely important. And I think that personal interaction... If there's a sense that by him, the prince not being prince regent with the authority of the monarch, with the actual, um, that authority, I think that in that some sense it lessens the influence of the country and the, and the, uh, and the monarchy as an institution. And if that is the case, then I think the Queen, the longest serving and oldest monarch by some time, would consider that position. Um, and that is something that is, I think, under consideration. Never, never mind what Buckingham Palace press office aren't always the first to know. That's all I would say. Well, exactly. And we saw Prince Charles very much involved in the, this decision that was made for Prince Andrew to sort of step away from his public duties. That wasn't something that was just made by the Queen by by herself. Far from it. I think the decision pretty much was driven by the, the Prince of Wales. I think he's he would have seen this um, from his perspective as a brother to try to protect his brother more than mm. anything else. And also for him to then... I'm, I'm sure the, the members of the royal family, um, the Queen, the Prince of Wales too, believe Prince Andrew. Mm. But it's, it's all a question of perception. That is the problem. Yeah. And the perception is that he, he didn't come across very well at all. It was damaging the monarchy. It came... what His interview that he gave came in the middle of a, a general election where when asked by an interviewer, both Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, the, the leading candidates for Prime Minister, both refused to back Prince Andrew. Yeah. Um, and that was dangerous in terms of the way that the monarchy works within the constitutional situation and the parliamentary democracy that we have. Mm. So I think that it was a wise decision. Um, I don't know if there's any way back for, for Prince Andrew at all. We'll have to wait and see. But I've, I do sense that, that going forward, the Prince of Wales would want a much smaller, uh, more contained um, monarchical system with less figures. Yeah, so well, we that have... was. I wanted to ask you about that because we've sort of been talking about the Prince Charles's desire for a, for a slimmed down monarchy since about, I think, 2012. And, you know, obviously what we've seen happen now with Prince Andrew, that kind of fits in with that picture. Do you think that we may have seen some kind of shuffling of positions or work happen anyway? Well, I, I just think that when you see so many people on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, which is wonderful when the monarchy is, uh, um, you know, celebrating a royal wedding or a yeah. big situation and everyone's quite happy about that and, you know, we all love that. But the, the, the truth is there are those that will continue to knock the institution and, the, the, and, and, and they look at those people on the balcony and think they're all being paid for by the public purse. And in some ways, many of them are. Mm. Uh, they believe it's too overstretched, there's money on security is too too expensive. And so I think it makes sense to try to cut down 
the, the the core focus of monarchy. I don't believe that if, if, if say, the Princess Royal said to her brother when he was king, I don't want to slow down, I want to carry on doing mm. what I've done all my life, there's any way that he would say to her, no, no, you're, you're being retired. Not in a million years. Yeah. Um, you know, I think also going forward, one doesn't know how long people are going to live, you know, and maybe... You know, at some stage, she would play a more supportive role to the Prince of Wales. Should, should the Duchess not be around? You know, the point of it is, is that she has a very active role, and I can't see that being reduced. You know, but maybe with the Prince Edward and, and Sophie, who do a fine job, actually, you know, we just, they just don't get reported as much. No. Um, that they would be allowed to continue, but not necessarily in the same levels. Um it's quite likely that Prince Edward will become the Duke of Edinburgh and continue with that Duke of Edinburgh's award mm. scheme and things like that. But I just think ultimately he will try to focus on Prince William's family. Um, what that means for Harry and Meghan, I don't know. I mean, that, I think there's clearly, as we've seen now, a member of the royal family effectively being retired early. Should Meghan and Harry not wish to be part of this whole... Um, circus, almost. There is almost, it seems to me, a, a path. Yeah, for there's no now. pressure there. There's no pressure, and I think if they went, you know, I think generally, if they said they said to the prince when you know, when he's king that we don't really see ourselves in this role, we want a different type of role. I think he would be flexible to mm, that, mm. and and because the core focus will be on William, the Cambridges, their family, yeah. and so you know, Meghan and Harry are further down the totem pole yeah. in terms of defining who they are what they want to be and if they want to spend half the time in America or somewhere else I don't see that going forward as being a major issue mm-hmm. you talk about the focus on the Cambridges I think family was very much the focus for Prince Charles in his 70th year we really saw him I guess publicly uh, sort of being positioned as a family man we had really got to know him as a future king we knew him as a husband last year is very much about seeing him as a grandfather and that's sort of something that's continued um do you think that that was an intentional effort to sort of paint a different side to him or show another side i I think to show another side to him because i think he's always been there you know you know he would often read you know to camilla's grandchildren and he's you know when he gets the chance he sees his own grandchildren, as both William and Harry said, he's a bit of a workaholic. He, he will, you know, just c- carry on. I remember saying, talking to the prince about, you know, I, I think he's quite remarkable at his age, the amount of work that he does, the amount of engagements that he's carrying out. And, um, you know, he's, he's uh, and I was talking about, you know, how, how he, about relaxing and how he loves to paint, because I like to paint too, and mm. uh, to relax. And he said, I just don't get enough time anymore. I don't get time. <laughs> you know, so you can imagine he's packing everything in. Everyone yeah. seems to think that the, being a member of the royal family, you can just swan around and, you know, you've got so much time. But he's often doing many, many things uh, off-piste, if you like, yeah. you know, that we do not see and generating an awful lot of... In, you know, he will bring... What he is, in my opinion, from what I've witnessed, is a great... Um, uh, convener of people and get and these people that he will bring together interact and get things done mm. and he doesn't even think he's done anything but he's brought the people together yeah that will engineer a massive change and what i found when i was in new zealand and um, on this trip where he had with him the head of the uh, the prince's trust and they're setting out to make it an international uh, more of an international trust as well and there's this young maori 
guy that had a daughter and he was basically trying to find his own business um, through the natural products that the Maori people would have used used over many, many years and the, and the way they would utilise those products. And they'd been able to get this all together and make it work. And it was, when that guy spoke, extremely inspiring, even mm. though I think a lot of people can be quite cynical about these things. You know, he was genuinely touched, I think, that this was happening on his watch and yeah. because of something that he'd found he'd created. Um, and, you know, I think we, as journalists and Royal Correspondents, we can become rather a little bit cynical. And I've been covering this one 30 years or so. And I think when I was at the outset, you know, you're always looking for an angle or a story. Of, or of course. Yeah. But as you go into it deeper, as you're writing books and you're doing other things, you can see that you know, there's a much, much longer um, term project goals involved. And also, much of what he does is completely interactive and connected. Whereas before, it all looked to me like, you know, one minute he's trying to save the planet, then he's trying to get kids employed, and then mm. he's going to say, I want organic potatoes and no yeah. bendy carrots. But actually, the whole thing is all <laughs> interrelated. In, in, and I think that's, that takes time to understand. It's very much on a global scale, and you've obviously been pretty much the only journalist that's travelled with him everywhere this year. You've yeah. been in Tokyo, you've been in New Zealand, uh, he's, he's been in Tuvalu and Solomon Islands, yeah. there was a trip to India. What's it like being, you know, I've, I've been with you on tours on yeah. a much bigger scale with the yeah. Cambridges, with the Sussexes. It's obviously a lot more intimate when yes. you're tra- travelling with the Prince of Wales. What's it like? It's, pref- it's preferable. I mean, you know, you, as we know, I mean, that half the time on some of the Cambridges tours, although the last one to Pakistan and and, uh, and to uh, Afghanistan borders was, was excellent, I thought. Mm. But, you know, in Africa we were together. And we know that when, say, the, the Sussex in particular, when we were in travelling around the, the, the islands and Australia, it was, you know, number one, you could barely get close enough. And number two, you may get one or two pool jobs. So, you know, you are very quite distant, actually. Yeah. And, you know, apart from, you know, the... The, the fixed points positions which are essentially for cameramen so you're not really part of it but as uh, with when you're with the prince you know you're the maybe the only journalist there you're in the royal plane they will have you on the the plane to go to internal flights etc mm. and of course there's interaction you know he, i mean he came over to me and was chatting to me quite freely and and you know i asked when i was in tokyo on that trip where i was the only journalist i could have a, a conversation and there's less you know we we're at a at a government uh, high com- um, you know, an embassy reception where we're all having a drink and you're chatting with all the members of staff and it's completely relaxed where when we're on a bigger you know uh, the, the, these crazy tours where there's like 80 journalists and photographers whatever you know there's, you're put behind a rope at a yeah. reception you know with him you're then mingling amongst everybody and it's quite relaxed less of a circus it's, it's completely and actually as a journalist as a writer you get to understand what is going on far better Mm. Um, and you know I was given I was lucky enough to have a chat with you know I requested a chat with him he was quite happy to have another chat with me and about this was but I was asking him about what he wanted to speak about there's no point in you know I think the impression we all get as journalists oh this journalist is going to start shouting questions about this that and the other with the royal it's not a politician with the royal family you know you have to have some agree, agreed parameters so it's this yeah conversation. it's a delicate dance it's going to go no <laughs> it's going to go nowhere i mean actually when i spoke to him a few years ago on the, for the book you know we talked about all sorts of things like the the royal yacht his views about 
um, everything from sacred ge- uh, geometry to you know all sorts of areas. As long as you've done your research, I think that then you can probably draw a little bit more out in that mm. conversation. As long as it's a natural conversation. But he wanted to talk about um, sustainable markets and saying that the, really the way that we can really change, you know, we've, uh, the, this environment issue is is the money. And the, and the, if unless we start getting the banks and the investment guys in the city invested in sustainable markets where mm. they can get a very good profit back, um, where they can make almost as much or if not more money as the prince was saying, we make more money on these sustainable markets, the world will not change. Yeah. And this, you know, because you've the human being is a selfish being, and it's driven by in many ways, particularly in the city, by profit. And so he's saying, unless we invest in those areas, and that way get that, that money back, then the planet is, you know, in, in, a, in a, is on a ticking time bomb. And do you think that this? I was going to ask you for twenty twenty, his what his focuses are. Do you think that this is very much part of that? What those that focus will be? Yes, without doubt. He started a new sustainable markets um, forum, and and he's trying to get again using his convening power to get people to in influential positions to follow this path. I think it'll always be mm. is with him. I don't believe when he's king, like some people, that he will in any way stop um, this desire and using his influence to save the planet. He, you know, he believes there's a ticking time bomb, you know, maybe a decade, maybe 20 years, and then when there is no turning back. Mm. You know, when the President of the United States, Donald Trump, came over and he was going to have a five-minute chat about these things, it turned out, as the President said, into an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> And and the prince did most of the talking. So he's, unlike a politician who might like Corbyn, who was saying, "Oh, I'm going to berate you know this man is a you know climate change denier. We're going to just shout and scream at the end of the road." The prince believes sitting down with over a cup of tea and actually having that conversation is far more beneficial. Absolutely. And you know something might sinking, something might make somebody make a decision that's slightly different, or you know you know it might not. But the point of it is he's he's done his bit. And the president said, you know, I was most impressed by his desire to save the planet. And the one thing I think that's important in his role as head of the Commonwealth, and he's now effectively going to be taking that on more and more as as the Queen won't be travelling, you know, in that respect. When he interacts with all of these prime ministers on those le- on on a level, um, you know, he can actually try to affect change, you know. A third of the common, you know, most of the Commonwealth um, population is under the age of twenty-five. Yeah, you know, this is a chance for him on a global scale to actually try to do something. And you know, I think until his last breath, he will try to to change um, and and to affect change over over the whole environment. And Absolutely. Well, it's been, it's been Im- Im- so impressive just to sort of see how far that has come. Because you look back, there was a time where people were laughing at him for even daring to bring up such a ridiculous subject, and of course now it's very much at the centre well, of most he, conversations. Well, around I mean, the world. he was like a caricature. I mean, the day I was around when the Charles and Diana story was unfolding, and you know, I was you know gil- I was working for the tabloids at the time, and of course we weren't. Really interested in you know him talking to a plant or you know it's almost like and then saying oh he's potty he's around the twist you know we would you know there was the, there was the narrative the caring diana narrative and the potty prince narrative and it wasn't going to change and you know we've seen things when we were on a trip together when you know you've got megan and harry and everyone's following megan no one's going to be following harry and, it, and these things happen mm. and you know it can be quite infuriating if you are the 
the prince who was being <laughs> followed blast, on every everybody was hanging on every word you said like a couple of years ago and then now all they're interested in is you know what Megan's got to say or what Kate's got to say or what they're wearing and it drives you mad but that's exactly the same yeah at the times of Diana if not worse uh, actually so and I, I think that the prince probably was infuriated in that time, you know, because he was trying to get his message across. And, yeah. And I remember when we made him at the Evening Standard, the Londoner of the decade, and he came along and um, you know he accepted it, and he and he said that most of what I have been doing over the years, you know, people thought was barking mad. He said, but at least now some people can see there's a spot of pioneering <laughs> at the centre of it all. And he was very jolly, and he was in really good form that that day. So. Yeah, and I think that people are beginning, as we've changed, society has changed over the last 25, 30 years, to listen more, mm. to accept, you know, holistic medicine and yeah. different thing and different, uh, you know, diversity is, is, is something that, you know, you look 30 years ago, you watch some television shows, you'd be genuinely shocked at the level of racism, uh, sexism, you know, uh, homophobic um, behaviour, and it was all on mainstream television. Yeah. So the world has changed dramatically. I think one thing that is good is that the, I think the newspapers have become a little bit more intelligent in the way they're assessing uh, the characters and the central players of the monarchy, and also giving more time to you know, and and well, yeah, more uh, more acceptance of other other cultures and, and, and other way things are done in a different way you know from local tribes in the middle of the, the, the jungle the way that they've developed health uh, products or that have always been there for thousands of years and now we say well oh yeah well that that's right yeah but before we'd be saying it's all mumbo jumbo no one took yeah. paid notice yeah. yeah it's no doubt going to be an extremely busy year for prince charles it sounds like there's a lot on the cards thank you again for joining the show robert and after the break, I'll be joined by Tom Parker Bowles, uh, who's just released uh, his cookbook, Fortnum and Mason, Christmas and Other Winter Feasts, uh, a real celebration of winter food. Uh, we'll be talking about how he celebrated his Christmases as a child, of course, with the Duchess of Cornwall, and hearing a lot more about the book itself. Now, as we inch closer to Christmas, I think food is very much on the forefront of everyone's minds. Certainly here in the UK, we don't get Thanksgiving, so we have to wait a little bit longer before we get to indulge in a wonderful holiday spread. Uh, I think a man who captures the magic of festive traditions perfectly uh, is going to join me now. Author of Fortnum and Mason, Christmas and Other Winter Feasts, Tom Parker Bowles, food critic extraordinaire. Thanks for joining the show. Hi. Of course, I've, I've been flipping through the book. Uh, very excited for this time of the year because, of course, it's festive. I'm finally feeling it. Uh, what, what, what inspired you to, to, go down, to, to go down this route? Well, I think Fortnum and Mason is, is a sort of is an iconic uh, London store. It's been around for over 300 years. Is it's fed presidents and prime ministers and princes and kings and queens and writers and everyone else. And for me as a child, when you would go and look at the windows of Fortnum and Mason, you cart to London, they'd be sort of rather beautiful clothes. And you go into the store and there'd be the set of Christmas and, you know, everyone in their tailcoats and, you know, the sort of uh, glittering candied fruits. And it, it was very much the essence of, of British Christmas mm. for me. And so when, when, you know, they said, would you like to write? Because I'd written the, the cookbook uh, for them before. And we just felt that Christmas and other winter feasts with Fortnum and Mason, you know, went very well together. We wanted to celebrate 
uh, Christmas. We wanted to celebrate not just Christmas, but winter food, you know, food to bring you together. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned Portland and Mason this time of year. It's my favourite place to go, especially when you've got all the extra staff. They're bringing all the students and everyone's kind of very willing. Of course, to help. yeah. It's, it's kind of dressed up like a movie set. What, what, what does Christmas mean to you at this time of year? Obviously, food is very much a focus of it, but how do you celebrate? So, I mean, food's always been a huge part of Christmas. Um, you know, in the traditional British uh, meal, which is actually, which, which, is, which is turkey and, and Christmas pudding and the rest of it, which is, you know, turkey being an American Arivis, really, it came over. Um, it was popularised by uh, Queen Victoria and sort of Charles Dickens, and so you know, originally we'd eat beef and uh, capon and boar's heads. But the thing about it, you know, for me, it doesn't matter what uh, you know, religion or, or or background you are. Christmas is a time for feasting together, coming together, and sharing the joys of the table. And, and growing up, it was you know, we all as a family, we all love food, and you know, my mother and aunt would cook the turkey in the morning getting up early um and, and and occasionally sort of kicking it into a too small oven um and it was just you know that it was the ritual of all the family coming together the tribes gathering and and feasting mm, i wanted to ask you actually about your childhood christmases and what you sort of remember the most what are the things that stand out any smells or tastes that stick with you we used to have all sorts of you know you know the, the house gets filled up with endless or wonderful cheeses and hams and dates and all that sort of you know excess of food there was also a a Christmas cake that was sold that was sent over from Texas every year um, from a friend of my parents in Texas. It had a lot of pecans in it, and it looked very exotic. We thought it was the most exotic thing in the world with a sort of cowboy on the tin. Um, so this was a slice of Americana that, that really excited us as children. But you know, we it, it, it was it was you know a time to eat too much and you know drink not, not as children drink too much um <laughs> but you know it was sitting down in front of the television watching the great escape or james bond or 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 um and eating too many too many of the sort of quality street candy and chocolates um it, it was it really was and of course you know with father christmas and 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 and, and stockings and it was just a time of high excitement and our family loved christmas you know the decorations and the tree and the presents it really was a, a, a time to you know we loved it as kids and it's still very much a, a family day for you now you obviously have your own family but i understand that you also yeah. spend time with your mother on christmas day as well well exactly it's, it's quite it's quite a sort of moving what we usually Juggling do is, acts, is imagine it's a juggling act. My mother um, is, is obviously with, with my stepfather um, at, at Sandringham, and she comes down um, after the Queen's speech. Uh, she that she comes down, and we sort of uh, usually we're, we're at home in the country at my mother's house. Uh, my father still comes. You know, they're obviously they're, they're, they're divorced. My father still comes for Christmas lunch. Um, I cook it. We have beef, and then my mother gets back about six, I suppose. Um, so again, it's you know, and she's I think delighted to um, to uh, you know just come and come and eat with us and just you know just basically sort of relax. Um, so it's nice. We still it's still very important for our family that we all come together at Christmas where, wherever we are. I don't think for my mother and father, I don't think we've touched wood had a Christmas apart ever weirdly. <laughs> oh, that's, that's lovely. That's what it's all about. And Christmas and exactly. other winter feasts uh, is full of incredible recipes. Uh, what ones uh, do you sort of plan to include on on your Christmas day? Oh, I mean, any any time. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan. There's some sort of classic um, Fortnum's uh, sort of Welsh rabbit or well, you know, Welsh uh, uh, rabbit, which is which is a sort of classic. Uh, 
it's a Fortnum snack. It's like it's like a grilled cheese sandwich, but it's a bit poshed up. Um, <laughs> I think that's <laughs> I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and then, of course, you know, my children occasionally say, "Oh, you know, well, we don't have turkey, you know, because I like beef more than turkey." So, you know, perhaps this year, I think actually I have ordered the turkey. This year, I might sort of t- you know put them out of their misery and give them turkey rather than beef because that's what all their friends have. Um, and I'm the sort of the Grinch who says uh, no beef is better. So, so this year it's going to be turkey, and there's a fantastic recipe for that. There's also sort of endless recipes for leftovers and and curries, and you know, and coming into January when we're all supposed to be very pious and stop drinking and eat healthily, there are <laughs> recipes that, that actually taste nice. They're not they're not sort of glum and gloomy. Um, they're really good sort of. Uh, healthy eating restaurants with, with packed with flavor but you know it is <laughs> christmas is a time of, of i suppose restrained excess it is it, it isn't a bit of an excuse to eat too much and uh perhaps drinking too much and 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 just sort of uh, and not go to the gym uh, and sort of wallow in indulgence i think absolutely that's what it's all about where, where did this <laughs> love of food come from i don't know i'm often asked that um i was um uh, you know, I was. We, I grew up. My mother was a very good cook. Growing up, my father was a gardener, a good gardener. He had a, you know, a, a kitchen garden. So we knew about the seasons, about asparagus and about tomatoes and uh, and and game and everything else. But you know, before it became trendy. So I grew up with a a decent knowledge of food, um, and I was just greedy, I suppose. Um, and and as I said, rubbish at any other job. I was always sacked from jobs after university. And I could string a sentence together. I loved eating. Um, and suddenly it became it became a job twenty twenty years ago. Um, I still can't still you know can't quite believe I'm uh, do a job that I still love food and I still love writing about food and I see food not just as uh, you know a hobby but food is something w- through which you can see uh, history and you can see economics um, you can see all sorts of things uh, through food you know it's, it's health it's wealth it's happiness um, I you know I I can't walk past a secondhand bookstore without jumping in to see if i can find some first edition of i don't know escoffier or or mfk fish or whoever it might be so i'm still amazingly a food obsessive but you know to write about food i think i think it was aj liebling who said this you know you have to have you know first of all you have to have an appetite and i certainly have an appetite <laughs> you mentioned that your your mum made great food. What were some of your favourite dishes growing up? Oh, I was bang on about how roast chicken. <laughs> but you know, it was it was very you know in America. And I've, I love America. I travel a lot in America, all over the place. There, there is still that preconception or misconception that the British food is bland and institutionalised and grey and dreary, mm. which. You know, if you go to a lot of schools, my school food was awful, and hospitals and bad pubs and tourist traps. It is, but British food is, you know, very very simple. It's about simple ingredients, you know, and, and not doing much to it. So whether it's good smoked salmon or uh, potted shrimps or roast beef or roast chicken, um, stews and braises, all that sort of thing. It's very simple food, but it's very ingredient led. Um, which why perhaps it doesn't travel quite as well as say Chinese, Indian, Japanese, you know, because mm-hmm. these, these, you know, it's very difficult to get the, you know, the Dover sole, a perfect Dover sole out, which you can in, in, in New York, but um, it's very expensive. <laughs> it, it is things like that. And I think, you know, because we lost our food culture, um, perhaps over the last 200 years, due to a huge variety of reasons, you know, rationing and uh, women leaving the kitchen to go and work and, and the Victorians sort of rather frowning upon food as something pleasurable. Um, it is the fact that we're very open. So, so you know, for me, what makes London great and what makes Britain great is immigration. You know, the fact that mm. the chicken tikka masala you wouldn't recognise in India, but that's, it's a very English Indian dish. Um, 
we we take in lots of influences and 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 we sort of make them our own and that makes me very happy and i find that most of all in london it's a great immigrant city and it means you can eat incredibly well absolutely i think uh, american and british dining tables during the holiday season are quite different are there any dishes in this book that you think might surprise some of our american listeners i don't i'm just trying to think um they're not really because you know you think about i suppose thanksgiving is a much bigger well i don't know but i always assume thanksgiving is a big one in america obviously you know the big big festival everyone coming together and having seen every movie and everyone coming back um i i I don't think there's you know it's it's not like sort of heston blumenthal or something like that you're going to find you know these 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 bonkers dishes um it it is traditional but it's not heavy it's not turgid um you'll find a lot of stuff you know a lot of vegetable uh based food you know a few sort of fondues and, and and that sort of thing um but things like spiced smoked salmon yes or juniper smoked um sp- spiced gravelax you know sort of cured fish um there's there's nothing really difficult but it does give you a sort of a, a, i suppose a snapshot of of british christmas um and not just um um you know the turkey and, and the trimmings or the rest of it but but different influences from, from around the globe because fortnum's has always been you know it's always taken in spices and it's always um you know, had all these wonderful ingredients from across the world, and especially very, very strong in the in the forties and fifties on American ingredients. You know, and Thanksgiving. You know, it was one of the first stores to look after American expats and say, "Hang about, you might be homesick, but we've got all the stuff you need, including, I'm sure, those marshmallows that go on the top of the sweet potatoes." Eh? Oh, yeah. Never quite got that. Never, never quite got that <laughs> one. Um, I argue with my American friends endlessly about that, but you know, each. I refuse own, to I believe think. that anyone actually enjoys it. It's just tradition to make it. <laughs> Oh, is it? Well, I, far be it from me as an Englishman to to to, to comment upon uh, this great American tradition, but, but a great friend of mine who's an American chef, you know, is always you know always arguing about about marshmallows. But anyway, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I'm now absolutely starving uh, and very excited about <laughs> Christmas. Now, if you are a foodie like myself and stuck for a Christmas gift or two definitely check out Christmas and other winter feasts. Uh, There's something in there for everyone. And speaking of everyone, you all, thank you again for joining me this week. Uh, I'll be back next week for a Christmas special, an extravaganza here at the ABC News Bureau here in London. I'll be joined by some guests from the past and we'll be going through some of the, some of the highlights of the year, but also taking a look at what Christmas means for members of the royal family. Where will they be celebrating? Who will be who? And what gifts do they exchange? And of course, a little bit more talk about the food because that's really where my mind goes every time. Thank you again for joining us. If you want to tweet me, send it to at Scobie on Twitter. Use the hashtag TheAirPod. I am looking out for all of your messages. I'll be going through a lot of those questions that you guys have been sending through. I have been collecting them. A big thank you to the team in New York, Leighton Schneider, Mike Dubusky and Anthony Ali for making the show happen. And until next time, see you.